Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I am your host, Nesson Birmingham. Today, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Jim Birchinoff. Jim is Vice Chair of Biopharmaceutical Investment Banking at Wells Fargo. He has spent over two decades on the sell side, both as an analyst and investment banker. Previously, Jim was Head of Biotechnology Equity Research at BMO Capital Markets, Barclays Investment Bank, and Lehman Brothers. He and I started our investment careers together at UBS Warburg. Prior to that, Jim was a physician specializing in internal and emergency medicine. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me today. You know, obviously you've been in the industry for such a long period of time. Your perspective on what we're seeing in the market today as it pertains to the biotech sector overall, um, contextualized by historical downturns, it would be great at a very high level just to get your thoughts on it. What's going on? How are you looking at it? And are you positive about the long-term opportunity here? Yeah, thanks, Ness, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to share thoughts with you. Uh, you know, I've, I've been following the sector, you know, first as an analyst and then more recently on the investment banking side for over 20 years and have been through a number of these cycles. Uh, you know, I would say at a high level, we've seen these downturns before. And the common, and there are several common themes when these downturns occur, and, and that is typically we're going from excitement about new technology to a process of digestion, to figuring out how do we translate the technology into new product opportunities. And across the different cycles I've seen, if I go back to 01 to 04, 08, 09, uh, 2016, and this recent cycle, there's legitimate enthusiasm around new technology waves. And then again, there's this process of trying to figure out, you know, who are going to be the winners, who are going to generate the real products. And that takes a bit of time. And I think the big question in this downturn is how long is this process of digestion going to take? I would say we're six to 12 months into this process of digestion. And um, I, I'm confident that we're going to emerge and, and I think we'll emerge um, you know, in a time frame that's consistent with prior cycles. Um, and it gives me that confidence is just the underlying advance in technology, I think, has accelerated. And I think our ability to convert good science into good medicines uh, has improved. And so I'm optimistic that we'll see recovery as we have in the past, but I think it's going to have to be led out by identifying new product opportunities. It's really the new product wave that drives the next cycle of innovation. So let's pick up on that for, you know, for a minute, just on new products and new technologies and the advancement that we've seen. Where are the places you're looking at that you actually think it's a key inflection point? I think you and I historically have discussed, right, areas like immuno-oncology where there really was a stepwise change that took place there. When you look at drugs like Avastin, again, stepwise change as we looked at that. Um, Sequencing, arguably, in some respects, we're still sort of waiting to see the full effect or the full force of sort of high throughput, whole genome sequencing taking place. But looking at today, where are we uh, as it pertains to new technologies and what are the areas that really you're looking at and saying you think that this actually could be a stepwise change as we look at therapeutic intervention? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great question, Ness. And when I think historically about um, other cycles, if I go back to 01 to 04, where there had been enthusiasm around the sequencing of the human genome, and then some challenge in converting that those insights into real medicines, the success of Avastin in colorectal cancer after several prior failures was really an event that catalyzed uh, a new category of medicine in terms of precision oncology. And overnight, 
we saw a lot of tyrosine kinase inhibitors back then characterized by their VEGF activity. And so, you know, I see many Avastin-like opportunities in, in the current environment, and that is, you know, can we get cell therapy beyond hematologic malignancy and into solid tumors? Can we get gene editing beyond the liver and into other tissues, CNS, muscle, other? Can we go beyond the initial gene therapy success of Zolgensma? Uh, can we go through, can we go beyond the initial RNA therapeutic success of Spinraza? And I think in the background, we're seeing, you know, a rapid pace of innovation and problem solving and problem solving and trying to figure out solutions to those problems. But, you know, areas where we're focused follow those, that line of thinking, uh, new opportunities in cell therapy, uh, next generation gene editing, uh, new approaches to delivery of transgenes. Um, new areas of immuno-oncology. You mentioned, uh, you know, the immuno-oncology category. It's been tough, tough to go beyond the PD-1 category and, you know, PD-1 X plus XYZ hasn't borne fruit, but we just need that one target that combined with PD-1 or in patients progressing on PD-1 inhibition show profound benefit. And uh, I, I think that's inevitable. Um, RNA therapeutics I mentioned, and, and certainly we'd love to go beyond delivery to the liver and the CNS and get into areas like muscle. So those are some of the areas that we're focused on. Uh, targeted protein degradation would be another area. I think there's roughly 55 or more uh, protein degrading companies trying to learn from the success of the IMID class and thalamid and revlimid and extend that success. And, and that's an area that we're really focused on. And then more broadly, precision oncology would be another area that we're, uh, we're intently focused on and looking for success. Thinking about cycles from a drug standpoint, so you talk about digestion and you talk about the inflection point. When we think about Avastin, you know, you've got a very clear target. Um, it took a while to figure out what's the best application. But from a from a you know reduction to practice and a simplistic si simplicity standpoint, you know it was relatively simple versus what we're looking at today as we think about just the complexity of these drugs. So, do you think the cycle as we think about these key inflection points are going to get actually longer because these drugs tend to be more complex? There's a lot more work to be done from a platform standpoint before that kind of conversion into specific therapeutic application, or do you actually think that we're going to see a compression of these timelines? Yeah, I, you know, it, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, and what I would say when I think back to the experience with Avastin and what came next and really trying to leverage that learning around VEGF biology and cancer and, you know, the many VEGF TKIs that came after that, in a lot of cases, it required 40, 45, 50 studies to try and identify renal cell cancer and other indications where VEGF inhibition really mattered. And back then, I, I recall thinking, you really need to have the balance sheet of large pharma to be able to prosecute this. And the winners were ultimately going to be those that align themselves with, um, with those large balance sheets. And so I, I think even in the case of Avastin, while that was a clear success, there'd been several fail failures in advance of that targeting angiogenesis. I think subsequent to it, it still required a lot of trial and error. So I don't think we're at any, you know, I don't think the targets we're identifying today are less well understood. I would actually say target biology is a central theme. I think we're understanding a lot more about the targets. 
Uh, I, I think the key in all this is, you know, beyond target biology, understanding your drugs really well and how they interact with the target, understanding the natural history of the disease you're targeting, understanding how to develop powerful endpoints to really show early and predictable signs of effect. And ultimately, the more potent and predictable the effect of your drug is, the higher the likelihood of success. And, and I would say today, uh, we're at an advantage. I, I think the, the challenge, though, is we've got so many companies chasing the same targets, it's become a crowded landscape. And so I have no doubt that we'll be successful in a more timely way than we were in prior cycles, just because we understand the targets better. We understand the natural history better. There are novel endpoints coming up all the time to capture the, the profound benefit of these drugs. But the challenge of this cycle is there's just so many companies chasing the same targets and picking the winners is going to be the more difficult challenge. So this is a whole other t- theme, right, that, that um, concerns me a lot. There is a huge amount of noise, it feels like, in the system. And trying to rise above that noise or be able to differentiate yourself, especially when you're talking about sort of preclinical and that sort of phase one stage type company, you know, really being able to differentiate yourself and kind of be heard by investors. When they look at just the volume of IPOs that took place, let's say over the last three years, it is being able to track that as an investor, it just becomes more and more challenging. And again, you're back to, you have a limited amount of bandwidth, right? You've got, you, on a pair company, time allocation standpoint, it means more companies, less time you can allocate to them. So less ability to be able to hear exactly what they're saying. When we look at that in the marketplace, how big of an issue do you think that's actually becoming? Or even do you think that is an issue today? Yeah, I think it's a huge issue. And I I, I put an exclamation point on on what you just said, Ness. And and that is, you know, by our estimate, there's anywhere from 1,200 to 2,000 new companies that have been formed and financed since 2015. Um, that's a lot for investors to digest. There's over 650 publicly traded companies in biopharma, you know, also a lot for public investors to digest. When we look at the breakdown of the companies that have gone public, historically, if you look at companies that were early stage preclinical or, or early phase one, that might been, might have been 10 to 15% of the IPO class. If we look at 2020 and 2021, it was closer to 50%. It might have been even a bit above that. And so we had many more companies being birthed, many more companies coming public, and and so many companies coming public at an early stage. And and I would venture to say not adequately financed to prosecute what they had in front of them. And I think perhaps with the assumption that the capital will always be there. And I think that's a bit of the challenge right now is we've got so many companies, a lot of categories that are very crowded, uh, we're still trying to figure out the differentiation. And I think sorting through all that, part of the key is going to be who's got the balance sheet to really prosecute what they're, uh, what they have in front of them and who's got the management teams and the clin ops and all the adjacencies to really develop these, these drugs. But I, you know, again, I'd make an explanation point and say we've had a lot of companies formed and not necessarily the, um, human capital and the, the infrastructure to really match that. So I think there's going to have to be, as part of this digestion, and maybe lead to the next topic, but some consolidation as well. Well, right. Focusing down on just the public markets today and, and that very point, you know, it feels like, and I'm sure you have the numbers, right? It feels like more our earlier stage companies IPO'd in this cycle than what we've seen historically. So it felt like there was a lot more sort of preclinical, and frankly, in some cases, pre-DC 
based companies that went out in this sort of wave. And those catalytic data points coming out to validate the company or validate the technology then are actually further pushed out. So back to the balance sheet, the size of the balance sheet, and the vagaries of sort of platform development versus, let's say, single target or a multitude of targets in a pipeline, but it's not underpinned by a platform that you're still looking to develop. Any observations just in sort of themes of what we've seen in this wave versus prior waves around that and potential considerations then as we think about the actual cycle here uh, in, in this uh, overall bear market in biotech? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, the, that process of digestion, I'll keep anchoring the discussion around that because I think, you know, ultimately it's what you go through during these trough periods. But what is making it more challenging is the sheer number of companies and capital is now more scarce. And cash runways are really uh, something that should be coveted. We did a screen where we looked at roughly 50 cell and gene therapy events across a large number of companies to see along the cash runway, where do you really optimize the value of the insights and milestones that you create? Where do catalysts really get rewarded? along that cash runway. And what we found from 24 months of cash, 18 months of cash to 12 months of cash, diminishing returns. And I think the numbers were roughly, if you had 24 months of cash on the balance sheet, the upside was roughly 16 or 17%. If you had 18 months of cash, it was roughly 8% upside. And if you had 12 months of cash, there was really no upside. It was, it was you know, I think 2% or less. And, and, and that needs to be a consideration. And as we talk to companies that were considering going public or we think we, we talk to existing public companies or we talk to companies even earlier in the cycle, we anchor it with that. You want to be a public company ultimately and get to events with 24 months of cash. And I feel that a lot of companies went public without a thought to having a meaningful cash runway at the point of their key inflection point. And so ultimately, as a public company, you wanna be able to get to events that matter, milestones that matter, and you wanna be able to do it in a way where you've got cushion on your balance sheet, where you're not necessarily reliant on the capital markets, where investors are in a position of having to purchase in the open market and not knowing that you have to raise again. And so I, I, when I say you know there was too many companies that went public and there's a lot of companies to be digested. I, I think a, a lot of the problem is that a lot of the companies went public with insufficient capital to really get to key events that matter. Okay, so you've got 30, 40% of com biotech companies need to raise within the next 12 months. You have some you know, cash crunch associated with them. We know that Negative data certainly pulls stock down. Neutral data can pull stock down. Positive data kind of keeps it where it actually is. We don't see this kind of uptick in the marketplace. From a news cycle standpoint, net negative news in the market over the last you know 12 months. So to your point about consolidation, right? Whenever we see a situation like this, invariably everybody starts talking about this wave of M&A that's actually just on the horizon and it's about to take place. And we're not seeing that materialize yet. And, you know, you, one could argue this is not a question of an, an EV valuation, right, um, associated with the companies or the technologies anymore. This is just the state of market and potentially the state of uh, the maturity of these companies from a pipeline standpoint as to when they'll actually impact, you know, pharma or biotech's bottom line. 
how do you think from an M&A standpoint, what is your sort of perspective on it? Just as thematically, where do you think things are actually going to play? And do you think that pharma and biotech on the whole are, will continue to sit more on the sidelines and watch and wait as these, um, as these pipelines mature? Or do you actually think that we're, that you feel that we're getting to a point where we actually should start to see more uh, sort of momentum now taking place in this space? Yeah, I, I think we need to see more momentum around consolidation. I think it's going to be more of the peer-to-peer uh, combinations. And with the idea of trying to create category leaders, conceptually, when I think about the problem we have right now, we may have cash in one area, assets in another area, and a management team in the third area. And pulling that all together might be what's necessary to be successful. And so, you know, if you look at Today, we've got 190 companies roughly and, and growing that have a year or less of cash. In large part, that's a function of having inadequate cash runways, and that's why they're trading at or below cash value because they don't have enough time to realize the opportunity with the runway they have. Those cash runways are really relative to what companies are trying to prosecute. And I think there's a large number of companies that are trying to prosecute um, very difficult, challenging, expensive endeavors. And those cash runways are inadequate for that purpose, but they might be adequate for an adjacent purpose that's less costly. And so part of what I think has to happen and will happen is, you know, the cash and the assets and the management will come together. And that might be consolidation of two companies to create a category leader, at least, you know, create a one plus one equals three situation. It may be a roll up of a category of trying to figure out you know, maybe there's more than two, several companies that create this category leader dynamic, but really to create efficiencies in development and bring together adjacent capabilities. Uh, the, you know, the other way that these peer-to-peer relationships could advance the sector is just looking at who's got adjacent capabilities. You know, as, as look at the, the cell therapy space as an example. You need protein engineering capabilities around the binders. You need cell signaling capabilities around the co-stims. You may need expertise around IO and cytokines. You may need gene editing expertise. Uh, There are ways to bring together complementary technologies to create a better likelihood of success than any individual company alone. So, you know, a long way to say I think we're going to start to see consolidation more peer-to-peer on the pharma side, you know, my experience has been over the last 20 plus years is pharma tends to pay a premium for certainty. Uh, they'd rather buy a de-risk asset at a higher price than, than uh, take the risk earlier. And, and so, you know, what we've seen is in terms of M&A, a third of M&A starts with a partnership that ultimately years down the road turns into M&A or a, a partnership discussion and another third of the cases uh, turns into M&A. But only a third of cases are really de novo approaches. Um, and again, I, I would say with that theme that, you know, pharma might pay a premium for certainty and like more uh, de-risk later stage assets and partner on the rest, I really think it's for the SMIDCAP sector to figure it out themselves with these combinations to create category leaders. But I, so I completely agree, right? We the reality is we're going to have to see some consolidation peer-to-peer in the marketplace. Invariably, by the time that actually happens, the balance sheets are so um, so low, right, or so compromised, that even a peer-to-peer sort of 
uh, combination without financing coming in on the back of it, you know, really isn't going to get the combined entity very far in fields. And this, this sort of social aspects of bringing these companies together can be pretty challenging. You know, relative expected ratio, who's the management team, you know, support from both boards and then the integrated board construct, and then the actual investors in each of the entities in their own rights actually supporting it. It's, it's, and then on, on, on top of that, we're what, 16 months in, right? And some people are turning around and saying this could be, you know, a 24-month sort of cycle or it could be a 30. So if you're 16 months in, you think that you're going to be able to eke it out by another, you know, four months, five months and get into the second half of this year and potentially the markets reopen. Like, are you going to actually just flip the coin and hope that, you know, the market will come back and you'll be able to actually eke out to that point and continue to survive? I think it's going to be a different path for every company, Ness, and, and, and that is to say you, you can't rely on your plan B and C being large pharma partnership, large pharma M&A, uh, consolidation with a cash-rich company to uh, help fund your assets. I, I, I think you're going to have to do what's within your own control, and that's you know rationalization of pipeline. And we're, you know, we're seeing some companies cost-cutting to extend cash runways. And I think a lot of companies are going to have to do that to really put themselves in a better position. And you may be prosecuting four or five different things, but I think taking a lens to your pipeline and thinking about in a more capital-constrained environment, where are we going to get the biggest bang for our buck is an exercise that you know most companies are going to have to go through because I don't think you can rely on consolidation alone uh, to be the savior of the sector. I, I think you're going to have to see some cost cutting, some rationalization of pipelines for us to get through this. And as we talk to companies and we talk to investors, there's a lot of uh, heads down mentality as, as is appropriate in this environment. It's really heads down around execution. And I think really trying to eke out efficiency around that execution is key. And where does the private market fit into? Because I think we've kind of focused on public, and I know peer-to-peer from your mind is, is not only public, but it's private also. Can you comment on a little bit on just how we see the overall sentiment and market dynamic from a public standpoint filter into the private? Because certainly I, I don't feel in talking to private companies on a regular basis that, that the realization has kind of crept in yet as to what the real state of the actual public markets is today. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. And when I started in my current role back in March of last year, I would talk to investors that did both public and private, later stage private and, and, and public. And back then, when the public companies were trading at a, a, you know, a significant premium, there was a view, well, you know, why don't we look at the next, let's look for the next generation on the private side. And that has completely flipped. Um, those investors that do both private and public, my sense is they're now leaning on the public side. And I think there's a incredible valuation gap between public peers and what we have on the private side. And there hasn't yet been that realization that, you know, we may need to take a mark to our portfolios, or we may need to think about doing a top up round at a flat to down valuation. You know, we're seeing a bit of that. Um, but I would say there's still some hope that the markets will recover in the second half and that will support a peer group that's closer to the private valuations. But I think right now we ran into a dynamic where private valuations were benchmarked off of 
a public market last year that doesn't exist today. And while, you know, plan A, again, uh, would be for a recovery to realign those valuations, I think inevitably as, as private companies think about continuing to finance themselves, there's going to have to be some recognition of the public environment uh, that they're heading towards. And, and that might mean top-up rounds that are flat to down. And this, this, in many respects, comes from not only though the investors, right? So the private investors, but the actual management teams themselves. And uh, you know, whenever you think about a down round, there's almost this perspective or this feeling that you failed somewhat, right? Um, as as a senior leadership team, um, versus the reality or the context of it as a broader market that you're not alone actually in facing this and having to actually navigate and work through it. I wonder from a experience on the management teams that you're seeing, are we seeing, you know, it's given the crop of companies that have gone out, just the sheer volume of it, you know, a lot of these are first-time CEOs, which I was myself, right? First-time CEOs that are actually learning and effectively apprenticing in real time in a very compressed timeline as you think about speed to IPO. So company formation, Series A, like huge Series A, B, almost MES or CMES into IPO within a sort of two to three year sort of time frame over the last, let's say, five years that we've seen this take place. It, 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 there's a massive reset now that I think we need to see from a management team's sort of perspective and their, their approach to these things. Are you starting to see that? that sort of step change taking place just in how they're approaching, how they're interacting with you guys as an example, just in the conversations and a realization on how to cut costs, address and survive in the current market, or are we still seeing sort of floundering going on uh, across across the sort of sector? No, I, you know, I, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm confident that we're going to have a recovery, you know, at some point, and we can talk about what the timeframe for that looks like, but I am seeing, as I talk to companies on the private side, some recognition that um, when they think about dilution, they may need to think from a longer term perspective. And that would be, you know, if our ultimate goal is to create a life changing medicine or advance science in a meaningful way, that is ultimately, you know, it could be a 10x plus or 20x proposition. So let's not get hung up on the dilution that helps get us in a healthy place to our next inflection point. And I'm, I'm seeing some recognition of that. Uh, you know, when I thought about things last year and looked at a lot of the, the management teams, they were, to your point, Ness, um, first-time CEOs, first-time management teams. And you didn't see a lot of companies that had teams with scars on them. I, I think having some battle wounds in biotech is helpful. And um, I, I think we're all learning a lot in this current cycle. And I think it's going to make for a much healthier sector coming out of this because we're having to think about these hard questions. You know, science has advanced so rapidly. How do we catch up and and how do we deal with finite, you know, situations of finite capital? So I'm encouraged by uh, the dedication of all the companies I talk to, to trying to figure this out, to being realistic. To your point, it is always challenging to contemplate a down round or to look at your valuation in a different lens, but I'm seeing some willingness to do that. And, you know, our point to companies is when you think about dilution, you can't just think about the next round. You've got to think about the bigger picture. And if you can't get down the runway of development, uh, that's going to be a pain. That's going to be a more painful 
uh, dilution point. And so um, I, I think companies are, are starting to realize that. So let's step out a little bit and look at it from a macro uh, standpoint. The What are the signals that you would look for that would give you a sense that the market is actually starting to recover? Um, what would you look for from a macro standpoint? And I was talking to a technical analyst uh, last week just about the recession, you know, potential, inflation, the political instability, uh, the sort of compounding, you know, of the sort of global globalization or retrenchment from a globalization standpoint. Are there factors that you look at that say to you or that you look specifically for that will tell you, hey, this is this is the start of what you think is a turn and that people should be sort of focused on? Yeah, so, you know, a few thoughts there. Obviously, the macroeconomic, macroeconomic and geopolitical environment is challenging. Um, and, and certainly any improvement there that could create more of a risk on environment would be a positive for biotech. I found, you know, looking at the biotech cycles over the last 25 years, that what cuts across macroeconomics and geopolitical environment is, again, coming back to new product waves. Uh, number one. Number two, if, if there were a uh, one marker I'd look look at, I'd look at GDP growth. If we if we see a decline in GDP growth where there's scarce growth in other sectors, uh, that tends to be an environment where investors are willing to take on more risk and take on biotech risk. And so, as I looked at the different macroeconomic markers over the last 25 years and what correlates well with biotech performance, it's actually GDP GDP growth inversely correlated with biotech performance. And so if we see a slowdown in the economy and other parts of the economy, that's where investors start to be willing to take on more risk around biotech. You know, the final bit is just on the technical side. I, I think there is this aspect when we get to a downturn and we, we reach a bottom, and I think we've reached a bottom of testing that bottom. And I think at a certain point, you test the bottom and that could be negative events, not bringing down stocks or the sector as much. And at that point, if you have these, these successful tests of the bottom where investors feel like this is truly the bottom, it becomes asymmetric to the upside. And I, I, I think we're, we're seeing some of that. We're seeing things that negative events, um, you know, the situation in Ukraine, you know, I recall when that started, the biotech sector traded down and then popped back up a bit. You know, I think that was one test of the bottom. So away from the, Vast and like events away from the consolidation, the large pharma MA, you know, the technical aspect is just testing this bottom and giving investors confidence that confidence that the trade is asymmetric to the upside. And I, I think we're starting to see evidence of that, but that, that would be something else I'd be looking for. Negative events not bringing things down as much is kind of the converse of the peak where you've got positive events and things still go down. So that's one of the things we're waiting for. And it, it it seems that there's a lot of capital that's sitting on the sideline from fund, pure fundamental investors. Obviously, generous have, have left allocating capital elsewhere. But a lot of fundamental capital seems to be sitting on the side waiting to be deployed. And it, it always feels to me like there's, you, you're right, right, as you look at the actual macroeconomic you know, considerations, but also there's just the psychological ones, you know, of people sitting on the sideline, waiting, 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 
LPs pushing back and saying, I'm not paying you to sit on your capital. I'm paying, paying you to deploy and utilize. There, it feels like there is a tipping point to drive people back in. And I, I, I kind of wonder if the second half of this year, probably more into the latter half of the third quarter, really will st- we'll start to see people kind of starting to step back in again, just from a time standpoint. But some other people I've spoken to have kind of come up and said, well, if you look at the dot-com period, that sort of downturn was 30 months. And that, you know, there is the possibility here that we look at more of an, we have the potential to be exposed to a much longer cycle than the last two or three, um, just given where we are and sort of the dynamics in the marketplace right now. Do you have a view on on, on that? Yeah, when, you know, when we've looked at uh, recoveries, um, you know, we've seen typical recoveries recovery cycles are 18 months and then back a one to four, it was a 30 month cycle. And that's been the debate. And the question that we faced is, you know, is this a typical recovery cycle of 18 months that might point you towards the latter part of this year? Or is it like the dot com um, human genome revolution of the early 2000s that could take us into to next year? I tended to, to tip more towards the former uh, the shorter recovery, and it's just because I, I, I do think as a, an ecosystem, the biopharma ecosystem is much more developed than, you know, back in 2001 when we had hats.com, socks.com, shoes.com, anyone out of their garage could have a .com. I don't think that's the biopharma ecosystem we're talking about today. I also think there's just been an accelerating pace of innovation what that yields is uh, more profound benefits of drugs. That means as long as you run the right trials, you can identify benefit earlier. And I think there's just an efficiency of drug development that comes from developing more precise, profound medicines that creates an efficiency that that argues for a more rapid recovery. And so I I tend to be more, um, you know, everyone's got their own crystal ball, but I tend to be more latter half of 20 versus um, 2023. Uh, And it's really just, you know, that confidence in the underlying pace of technology advance. And I do have optimism that we're going to see those questions get answered. Success in solid tumors with cell therapy, gene editing, getting outside of the liver, RNA medicines, you know, getting into muscle and more broadly in CNS. Um, Further advances with precision oncology. PD1 plus XYZ yielding the next, you know, hot target. Um, next generations of immunology medicines. I, I think there's so many categories of medicine and a lot of smart people looking to solve these problems that to me just inevitably we're going to see a more rapid recovery in this cycle than we've seen in prior cycles where, where we weren't as evolved as an ecosystem. Well, that's a great list of areas that you know, we really need to address and many companies are looking to address and, you know, provide stepwise changes, you know, not new targets, right, to deploy these new therapeutic modalities against delivery systems that get us outside of the liver, as you talked about earlier, CNS, you know, I think there's a multitude of indications in the CNS. It's how do we get our drug? What's the right target, A and B? How do we get our drug to the actual cells that need it to actually drive effect? And then how do we think about the clinical development strategy for this? Overlying that, I think, is is regulatory path 
and cost of goods or overall reimbursement rates. You know, you and I have seen now over multiple decades the kind of cost of drugs, you know, creeping up because the complexity of the drugs are greater, right? The actual, you know, components that we need to put in, the manufacturing of them, and the actual development timeline for them is, is extended somewhat for, for novel areas and novel modalities. On regulatory and cost, any thoughts about, you know, where we're going or how we may want to be thinking about it over the next, you know, five, 10 years um, as these modalities really are coming online and really impacting uh, disease? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a very uh, important points in all of that, Nesson. And, and uh, you know, on the manufacturing side, I think there's a lot of room for, for improvement in cost of goods. I, I think a lot of the, the medicines we're developing today, the cell therapies, the gene therapies, can have quite an expensive cost of goods. And so I think bringing that down uh, will be a key to success. I think on the pricing side of things, payers seem to be willing to pay for medicines that truly have a pr- profound benefit. Uh, Spinraza had no problem getting reimbursed at a premium. Zolgensma similarly has not, uh, you know, I think they did $1.4 billion in sales last year with Zolgensma. Um, you know, I, I would say the cell therapy area is somewhere where we could benefit from some evolution of payer thinking. If you think about that category, what keeps me very optimistic is we've got five approved cell therapies for a very narrow set of indications in a reimbursement paradigm where centers are actually losing money. And as we talk to those centers, they'll say, you know, we're willing to take on a, a certain amount of loss because inevitably we expect this to at least become cost neutral or maybe a profit center. And so, you know, I think there's got to be some evolution in how payers think about things like cell therapy. But in general, I feel, you know, profound benefit brings reimbursement, incrementalism, not so much. And so, I, you know, I think that should be the goal. If we're, if we're producing medicines that have profound benefit, I think reimbursement will follow. If we can do that in an efficient way and reduce cost of goods, I think that's one area where there's a lot of opportunity. Um, you know, one, thematically, we saw a lot of companies that wanted to control their own destinies, building out their own manufacturing suites. And um, that's, a, that's a costly venture. And I, I think a lot of those companies would love to get that cash back. And so some con- consolidation around the manufacturing, you know, I think could bring efficiencies as well. But I think all of those themes you mentioned are going to be important. HCV was a space you spent a lot of time looking at and kind of uncovering. Is there anything to be learned from, you know, the likes of the rollout of Solvati um, and, 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 and how to prepare the market for that? You know, I think there was a lot of concern, for example, and again, I'm just back to reimbursement, how people perceive, uh, you know, perceive the net impact here, how to effectively adapt to that market and ensure that for a curative therapy, actually it's able to get out and reach the people that, um, that need it. Yeah, I, you know, I, th- I think that was an example of a tremendous success in reducing a burden of disease. Um, I, I think it created a, you know, business model where we had a rapid peak of revenues and then a decline. And so, you know, there's a few lessons learned there. I, I you know, I, I'd start with just the development of those HCV combinations to say that, you know, the, I think it was the electron study that had many arms, it could have been nine or more, but I, I feel like in terms of drug development today, we've got to have electron type studies interrogating a number of things all at the same time. 
I think on the commercial side, you know, finding the patients is, is critical. Uh, I think that was a large success of, of Savaldi was finding HCB patients and having them declare themselves and creating a sense of urgency around the treatment. I think that's going to be, you know, a key area to learn from in terms of the rare disease and genetic medicine space where, you know, prevalence-based estimates might say there's 10,000 patients, but there's only 500 who have been identified. I think that's going to be an important success, not only in creating successful medicines, but also managing the burden of the disease is, is finding these patients as we did with HCV. This is great. Well, thank you very much for your time. I know that, um, you know, I, that, that, that we're all pretty busy and I appreciate you taking time from your schedule for this. Um, at some point, I'd love to follow up with you to actually dig into drug discovery and development and kind of walk through a couple of different therapeutic areas just to think about some of the challenges that we're all facing in the industry to be able to crack those open, um, given your perspective uh, over the last few decades. But for today, thank you so much for your time. It was great to get that input and it's certainly um, very informative. So Jim, thank you. Well, terrific, Ness, and I appreciate the opportunity. Always great to share thoughts with you. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves. 